Welcome to the Pacific Education Pulse podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and cutting-edge information through interviews with movers and shakers who are positively impacting the field of education in Hawaii and beyond. Each episode highlights the work of local and national experts who dedicate their lives to improving teaching and learning so that children and youth reach their full potential. Learn more and subscribe today at PacificEducationPulse.com. Here's your host, Dr. Hugh Dunn. Aloha, I'm Hugh Dunn, and I'd like to welcome you to the Pacific Education Pulse podcast, also known as Pep Talk, which is the show that keeps your finger on the pulse of education. You can find all Pep Talk episodes on podcast directories such as iTunes and Spotify, or go to our website at PacificEducationPulse.com. This program is brought to you by the Pacific Literacy Consortium, administered within the Curriculum Research and Development Group. Today's pep talk guest is Dr. Joanna Christodoulou, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. She is also the Director of the Brain Education and Mind Lab, also known as BEAM, based in the Center for Health and Rehabilitation Research at the MGH Institute. Dr. Joanna Christodoulou holds a doctorate from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Human Development and Psychology, as well as a master's degree in mind, brain, and education from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and a master's degree in child development from Tufts University. Hi, Dr. Christodoulou. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Well, it's not every day that I get a chance to talk with a cognitive neuroscientist, especially one whose work integrates education and neuroscience. This is an exciting opportunity for me and our listeners to learn more about the brain basis of learning, especially as it applies to reading. So having said that, please explain your role as a developmental cognitive neuroscientist. Well, first, I want to thank you for having me on your podcast, Hugh. I'm really excited to connect with your listeners on the topic of reading and the brain. My work as a developmental cognitive neuroscientist has the goal of learning how children learn. We study skills that are important for school, like reading, math, and attention. We work with children in elementary school and use both clinical and neuroimaging tools to measure skills. So our clinical tools are tests that are commonly used in schools or clinics uh, to understand a child's learning strengths and challenges. And our neuroimaging tool is a brain scanner. Uh, It's called an MRI machine that stands for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. That allows us to peer inside the brain's architecture safely and non-invasively. So our team learns about development of academic skills and how struggling students can better be understood in these ways. Wow, that's fascinating and very important work. I'm curious to know what influenced you to pursue a career that intersects education and neuroscience? Well, I really enjoy working with children and their families, and I'm especially motivated to support students who struggle in school. We know that each student has so much to offer and that for students who have difficulty in reading, for example, they're asked to work on what's hard for them more often than they have the chance to showcase their areas of strength. And my team is dedicated to helping struggling students become stronger in reading and related skills so they can excel academically and beyond. How do neuroscience methods and and knowledge benefit the field of education, especially in terms of practices and policies? Well, one benefit available is the opportunity for dialogue between educators, researchers, and other stakeholders so that questions with the most relevance can be focused on when people are doing the the research part. 
Another benefit that neuroscience can offer is the potential to offer data that isn't available or not effectively measured through the current tools we have in education. And that could really help widen the range of understanding that we might have around educational topics. Oh, that's terrific. Please share some of the key work you lead or co-lead at MGH, as well as other entities, including Harvard Graduate School of Education and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Sure thing. So in our lab, we focused on groups of struggling readers and ways in which understanding individual differences might better inform our understanding of how to improve outcomes for students. So we have an incredible team of students, postdocs, and colleagues. And with that team, we focused our most recent work on a topic familiar to many educators, I'm sure, which is the topic of summer slump. The idea that children start off the school year in September far behind where they left the school year in the previous June. So our recent work on that topic, we learned that children in an early elementary school with reading difficulties benefit substantially from effective summer reading intervention and can avoid the summer slump relative to peers who don't participate in reading intervention. And we also found that children who were from lower socioeconomic backgrounds those who are more reading impaired actually benefited the most from this summer reading instructional setting. And we also were fascinated because the brain changes reflected these findings as well. That sounds like an interesting initiative, especially in light of the research that shows how summer reading setback can cumulatively contribute to the widening achievement gap. What have you and your colleagues discovered through your research on the brain basis of reading? So as a field, the researchers involved in studying the science of reading have ever since the mid-1990s, when imaging has been a common research tool, identified a very specific set of networks that are engaged when people read. And on top of that, people have learned that there's a very consistent signature of how the reading brain system differs in those with dyslexia. So the first main finding is that the reading brain looks very distinctive in those with and without dyslexia, and we can talk more about that. Also, it's been fascinating to find that studies have been conducted with children with dyslexia before and after they've received effective reading intervention. And research has shown that after effective intervention, the brain can change in ways that reflect the efficacy of the intervention and rewire the brain and reflect more effective approaches to decoding and processing text. When you say rewiring, does it have something to do with the term neuroplasticity or brain plasticity? Absolutely. When we talk about the brain changing and neuroplasticity, we're talking about the same thing. And that's the idea that the brain is very responsive to the experiences that it has. And one of the most impactful ways in which the brain has changed is through education. Teachers have one of the most incredible privileged and special jobs because they are brain changers, they are brain influencers, and all of their effective instruction and efforts to engage children, not just with instruction, but also all of that socio-emotional training that goes along with that, go a long way in educating the brain, which is reflected in how the brain is wired as it processes information. Well, I, I like that term that you mentioned, that teachers are brain changers. You mentioned a lot about what's happening in the brain. So that's kind of like under the hood, so to speak. What are some of the neuroimaging methods that are used and 
What are their specific purposes in revealing the brain function of a person engaged in a reading task? So the tool that I've used most often is called magnetic resonance imaging, and the shorthand for that is MRI. Many people might be familiar with an MRI scanner because if they've had to go to the hospital to have a brain scan, one of the tools they may have had was an MRI. So that tool, that scanner can be used to get all sorts of different data about the brain. So you can use an MRI scanner to get information about how the brain is structured, or you could use that tool to get information about how the brain functions. And when you use an MRI machine to study the brain function, that's what we refer to as fMRI, or the F stands for functional. So this tool is an incredible way in which we could peer under the hood and actually see how different parts of the brain work together and how this amazing orchestration of all these different brain parts works so miraculously for so many kids so effectively and what the individual differences are for kids who have a little bit more difficulty in that area. You and your colleagues must use these neuroimaging tools extensively in your research. Our team uses MRI quite often because we're very interested in the pairing of brain data and behavioral data. If we just work with behavioral data, which is usually using the assessments that clinicians or school professionals might use to learn about a student's profile, both their cognitive skills, their language skills, their reading skills, we can learn so much about who a child is as a thinker. But what we really want to do is move beyond that and see how we can learn about the brain structure and the brain function underlying this performance. And a great way to think about it is to think of an iceberg. What we see at the top, above the water, is the behavior of a student and what we can observe with our own senses. But what we are using the MRI machine for is to go underwater and to explore the huge depths of additional iceberg that's floating under there because there's so much underlying behavior that we need additional tools to access. So that's a big reason why we're interested in using the brain science as a complement to the behavioral science. I like your analogy of an iceberg, which illustrates that these imaging tools shed light on the important brain functions that would otherwise go unnoticed. In one of your articles, you touched upon the two reading routes or neural pathways. Please explain to us the function of these two pathways. Absolutely. So this is a great way to think about how all of us approach the challenge of reading. All of us can be put into a situation where we might encounter a word we don't know, and for young readers, when they're acquiring reading skills, every word is a pseudo word or a made up word until they recognize it as a real word. So when we're learning a language, every word is a, a made up word until you realize it's an actual word with meaning and with relationships that you can recognize between how sounds and letters relate to each other. So here's a way to think about it. If we think of you and your last name, Every time you see your last name, you likely can read it right away. You don't have to break it down and you immediately can access it no matter which handwriting it's in or what font it's in or otherwise. Is that accurate? Yes, that, that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why that's a really helpful way to think about how we read is because with exposure and with repeated experiences and with familiarity of specific relationships between sounds and letters, we stop having to break words down and we start relying on this visual memory of the word form. 
So in the brain science, we refer to a part of the brain that supports this as the visual word form area, or the VWFA. And this is a part of the brain in the back that's part of the visual system that over time with age, with reading experience in particular, it becomes increasingly tuned to recognizing words right away. And so we might call that word recognition and word identification in the education world. And that comes with, again, experience and exposure. And some words we have to memorize in English because the relationships between sounds and letters are not decodable. Our language, we refer to it as opaque because you can't, you don't have a one-to-one relationship between sounds and letters like other languages do. We call those more transparent. And you have one letter, one sound, and you can access it right away. So one approach to reading is memorizing or overlearning what words look like so you can recognize them right away. The other approach to reading is breaking them down. So in the very beginning, many people, especially for last names maybe more like mine, that have more syllables and more letters and maybe less familiar, it requires you to break it down, put it into parts, and little bits at a time accumulate the relationship between sounds and letters. And so the two roots for reading, one of them involves word recognition and the other one involves decoding. This is mapped pretty cleanly into how the brain systems operate as well. So we have two regions that are part of larger networks, but that are really supporting these processes. For the decoding route, there's a part of the brain on the left side, right above our ear, and we refer to this as the dorsal root and refer to the other region called the ventral root or also referred to as including the visual word form area part of the brain for word recognition. So in essence, during the act of reading, we recruit both neural pathways, the lexical and non-lexical roots, and the interplay of both will tend to vary depending on the task and ability of the reader. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And the term phonological awareness, when you were explaining that, came to mind. And we understand phonological awareness in general as a broad skill that includes identifying and manipulating units of oral language, including words, syllables, onsets, and rhymes. What does neuroimaging demonstrate about the importance of phonological awareness? I'm so glad you brought up this critical skill of phonological awareness that's one of the best predictors of reading outcomes. It's an area that you can measure before reading instruction even begins so that it can be part of screening measures and it can be part of the profile that we're tuned into to know which children we might want to support as early as we can if they have some vulnerabilities there. I also love that you brought that up because we do so much during early childhood development that really amplifies a child's opportunity to develop their awareness of the phonology of language. For example, nursery rhymes are a fantastic example of how we use language and put emphasis on words that rhyme and concepts that are brought together because of similarities in the word sounds. And so this whole idea of phonological awareness is really built into how we as adults and educators take care of and train children from the earliest stages of their language experience, even before school begins. From the neuroimaging side, it's pretty clear how important the role of language, 
before we get to even the literacy side, just the role of languages, because we have several brain regions that support and are caught into the networks of reading. In other words, our reading brain systems don't have spots in the brain that just integrate print with sound. There are many regions that are inclusive of oral language processing in general, and regions also that integrate sound and letters. So as far as phonological awareness goes, one way in which it's pretty critically important is that our dorsal system, where we have the reading system that is supporting decoding, relies heavily on our ability to have phonological awareness. If we're not able to be aware of the sounds of language and manipulate them and engage with them, our ability to apply that skill when we have to decode is going to be severely compromised. And in fact, that's one of the things that we see in readers with dyslexia. The neural signature of dyslexia is reflected in a compromised skill set in phonological awareness. In other words, one of the defining features of dyslexia is an impairment in phonological processing. And one way that's reflected in the signature of dyslexia at the brain level is to see relatively less activation in the dorsal system of the brain that supports decoding. So neuroimaging data align with research that demonstrates the importance of phonological processing as a key factor in reading acquisition. You mentioned again the dorsal region of the brain. For background purposes, where exactly are the dorsal as well as the ventral regions of the brain? When I use the terms dorsal and ventral, I have to share with you a great analogy that relates to a fish. So if we think of a fish and we think of the dorsal fin, the dorsal fin is on the top of the fish. So whenever I say dorsal, I think to myself, that's upper. And when I say ventral, I think of vent and I think of breathing and I think of gills. And the gills of a fish are in the lower part of the fish. So when I say dorsal, I use my fish analogy to think upper. And when I say ventral, I use that to think of lower. So the dorsal system in the brain is referring to a portion that's right above my ear toward the back. So it's a dorsal system because it's the upper part of the brain. And it's also posterior because it's in toward the back of the brain. And the ventral system, likewise, is in the posterior part of the brain, but it's in the lower part of the brain. So that's why it's called ventral. I like your visual cue for remembering the dorsal and ventral systems. Does neuroimaging reveal other parts of the human brain that are engaged during the act of reading? So in addition to the dorsal and ventral systems of the brain that are located in the back of the brain, we have, in actuality, a large portion of the brain dedicated to and involved in reading even just a single word. So we also have a lot of engagement with the frontal lobe, so the part right behind our forehead. And this part of the reading brain system, people think of it as being involved in attention, executive control. And that means paying attention, shifting, having strategies, planning, organizing information. Of course, there's also a social engagement portion to reading that impacts how you're reading, how you're understanding, how you're relating to different features of the text. And there's also, sometimes this is thought of as surprising, but the cerebellum, which is at the base of the brain in the top part of your neck, right in the back there, is actually really important for reading as well. We might remember the cerebellum as having an important role in things like motor control, like walking or running or throwing a ball. But 
There's been great research highlighting that the cerebellum is actually very important for reading skills, in particular, reading fluency. So for skills that require automaticity, like reading does, the cerebellum is playing a really big role in facilitating the potential to have automaticity or to be a fluent reader. What about the visual word form area? What does research specific to this area tell us about its role in the initial stage of reading? The visual word form area is is actually the only part of the brain that we specifically name as part as specific to the reading brain system. In other words, every other part of the brain that we refer to that's important for reading already has a name, but we named a specific part of the visual cortex because of its functionality in the reading brain system. So when we are born, there is no specific area dedicated to reading. Only with experience and exposure to the specific languages we have in our environments, we actually tailor a specific part of the brain in this visual system that becomes very tuned to recognizing the visual representation of language, so words and letters and how they're organized. So over time, a specific part of the brain becomes dedicated to reading. We call that part of the brain the visual word form area. And as we we become more expert in reading, as we have more experience and exposure to print, this area becomes what we rely on relatively more than the parts of the brain that support decoding. I see. So are human brains genetically predisposed to develop neural systems that support reading specific processes? Humans are not designed to be readers genetically. So we have no gene that's specific to reading. We're not designed or programmed to have to be readers. In fact, reading is a cultural invention and a societal invention, and it didn't always exist. Every time a child becomes a reader, it's another incredible achievement that, that's happened. It's almost more amazing that children are able to succeed with reading as often as they do than it is that sometimes it's, it's a hardship. So this idea of having a reading brain system, what we really mean when, when we say that is that we have to repurpose regions of the brain dedicated to language, memory, cognition, visual systems, auditory systems, etc., and orchestrate an incredible symphony so that they can operate in the right sequence, in the right with the right dynamic to make reading possible. But all the achievements of reading are dependent on parts of the brain dedicated originally to other purposes. What you just shared goes against the grain of a prevailing myth that supports the idea that learning to read occurs naturally, similar to a child learning to speak, read faces, or understand spoken language. But you shed light on the fact that reading is a cultural invention, which means that children need to be taught to read through validated instructional practices delivered by teachers who have an in-depth understanding and knowledge of the science of reading. We'll cover reading instructional practices in more depth in a future pep talk episode. But going back to what you said about culture, what does neuroimaging reveal about cross-linguistic differences between alphabetic, logographic, and syllabary language systems such as English, Japanese, and Chinese, respectively? I really appreciate this question about thinking of reading and dyslexia across languages. The majority of work started out in English, and it's, it's certainly expanded in other, in other languages. What's really important to think about is that Every time we read, the basis of what we're doing is the same. 
which is we're translating something visually into a symbol that's auditory. In other words, we're taking a scribble on a page that we all agree is going to be meaningful to us because that's our societal inheritance. And we're going to tag a sound to it that also we decided societally will be meaningful to us. As we build that relationship, that builds the template for us to be successful at reading. This memorization and this tailoring of how what we see in print matches to sounds. So when we think of the reading brain across languages, it's incredible to see that across languages that are alphabetic, so English and Spanish, Italian and Greek and French, etc., there is a very consistent signature of the reading brain. There's also a very consistent signature of how those with dyslexia differ in how they engage their brain. And that makes sense because there's so much that's shared across alphabetic languages in terms of how you process print. What's shared is that you might see a combination of letters, and only when you see those letters in combination does the meaning emerge. So if I just see a D by itself, an O by itself, or a G by itself, none of those are meaningful, but together they would spell the word dog, and all of a sudden I have access to semantics and meaning. In other languages, for example, in Chinese, each unit of language is actually a morpheme. A morpheme refers to the smallest units of meaning in a language. And so if I see one symbol, I automatically have access to some meaning. And how those morphemes or those characters are combined dictates the overall message that's trying to be communicated. So what's shared across languages that are alphabetic or logographic is that they all require translation from print to sound and sound to print. And therefore, that property is shared in how the brain is engaged in reading across different languages. There are some differences that are really interesting in how dyslexia and reading do differ. So while all languages share the responsibility of the reader to translate between print and sound, what differs are the demands on the reader. So for example, if you are reading a language like Chinese, not only do you have to remember what a specific symbol sounds like, but you have to keep it in your spatial working memory and your verbal working memory because the meaning of the overall message will depend on the sequence of those characters. So if I see one character followed by the next character, I have to keep in mind what order I saw them in and what each distinctive character represents in terms of meaning. And that working memory demand actually means that the way in which a reader of that kind of language uses the brain relies a lot more on the frontal system in ways that are distinctive from readers who are reading alphabetic languages. It's fascinating to know that the organization of a written language and its transparency has an effect on the processing demands of the brain. What about when children become older? Explain the increased specialization of the left hemisphere as well as the increased engagement of the left posterior portion of their brains and what the shift in activity in the left hemisphere demonstrates in terms of how children typically progress toward reading maturity. So as children become more experienced and better readers, there's a quick shift from relying on both sides of the brain to primarily relying on the left hemisphere for reading words. And that's usually within the, the school year between ages five and six, the kindergarten year. Another change is shifting from prim primarily breaking words down to automatically recognizing words. 
the really important thing to know is that these changes and shifts don't happen because a child gets older, but as he or she becomes more experienced in a specific language, they're able to have these changes happen. These changes are also language specific, so you wouldn't see the same pattern for language that a child doesn't know, just those that are in the child's repertoire. I see. So there are functional and structural brain differences that characterize dyslexic learners? There are certainly functional and structural brain differences between readers with and without dyslexia. And the, one of the most striking stories about brain differences in the, is the way in which the brain functions during reading activities, since after all, reading is a very dynamic activity. So the signature of dyslexia has three key components in terms of the brain. First, regions that are recruited typically on the left hemisphere for typically developing readers are also activated on the right side in dyslexia. Second, regions in the back of the brain that support both word recognition and decoding are activated relatively less in dyslexia. And third, the front of the brain, which supports skills such as executive functions and attention in addition to other skills, that tends to be relatively more activated in dyslexia. So for readers with dyslexia, what types of reading instructional strategies and interventions have shown to increase activation in brain regions similar to that of typically developing readers? So the good news is that teaching children with dyslexia to read is not a mystery. Research evidence shows that explicit, systematic, multisensory, and phonics-based instruction is the most commonly recommended approach to supporting readers with dyslexia. A few studies have shown that these types of reading interventions can rewire the reading brain, specifically as readers improve their decoding and word recognition skills, there's increased engagement of the two reading networks in the back of the brain on the left side as well. What you shared on today's show about the neural underpinnings of reading has potential to not only inform but transform instructional practice. What are some of the near and far-term goals of the application of neuroscience in the area of children's reading development? One of the most exciting areas is referred to as neuroprognosis, which means that brain science may be able to help in predicting outcomes. So a challenge presently is that it's really hard to know which children will become better readers over time, which ones will benefit from which instruction or intervention, and similar concerns along those lines. Studies published so far have shown that data from neuroimaging can go beyond what behavioral data tells us. And so brain imaging data has actually been important in showing prediction of outcomes, and that's an area very exciting to explore. So in particular, there have been several studies that have shown if you collect behavioral data from children using the best clinical and education tools we have, and you also do brain scans to see their brain functioning when they're reading. Then you followed up some years later. The brain imaging data has been far more predictive of who became a better reader compared to the behavioral tools. Wow. And so when you, meant, when you say behavioral tools, what are you referring to? So in the education world and in the, edu in the clinical world, we often try to understand someone's reading skills by giving them standardized assessments. So these are assessments that allow us to figure out how someone is reading by giving them a test of reading real words or reading made-up words, and then coming up with a score that is based on a norm sample or a group of their peers that tells us, oh, this child's performing 
where we want them to because they're right in the average range. Or this child's showing that they have a lot of difficulties in this area because they're far below where their peers are. Can we expect to see neuroprognosis play a larger role in identifying early reading disorders and in predicting reading outcomes? Well, the conclusion that I'd like to share is not that brain imaging would replace educational assessments or be needed for a diagnosis, but rather it's instructing us that there are some data that we don't have right now that we're missing and that we may be able to develop new behavioral tools that might be more sensitive to predicting outcomes in children or understanding why some children are struggling. So it provides another important data point for educational stakeholders. Absolutely. What opportunities are there for educators who want to increase their understanding of the brain basis of reading and to become critical consumers of neuroscience in order to ultimately improve student learning? That's so important. And I think one of my recommendations would be to encourage educators to join their local chapter of the International Dyslexia Association, which includes access to journals that the IDA publishes. And that often includes information on the brain science of reading. And for those who can commit to a more intense experience, I recommend exploring graduate programs that can be in person or online that include attention to the science of reading with the brain science included as well. But what really those two examples demonstrate is that we we want people to have a community of learners that help them stay current with published research, have a platform to discuss the implications of these, and to really think about how this applies to their community of learners that they're engaged with. That's good to know, because it's always a challenge for educators to translate the science into useful classroom strategies. I also want to mention that the first time I met you and Dr. Gabrielli was in 2014 at MIT, where I attended a Learning in the Brain summer institute called the Neuroscience of Reading, which both of you co-led. And it was a great learning experience for me. Are the two of you still facilitating that summer institute? Yes. John Gabrielli and I have continued that workshop. It's held every summer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it's a great opportunity because we have a small setting where we could really focus our energy for almost a week exclusively on this topic of how to better serve the students that we work with in their reading difficulties and do that as a community that comes together. Great. And for our listeners who are interested in attending that either this summer or in subsequent summers, can they go to the Learning in the Brain website or is there some other place they can find that information? I believe that the Learning in the Brain website would be a great place to find that resource. Great. In light of what we discuss, can you recommend a book or an article to our readers who want to delve deeper into recent advances in the science of learning? I recommend books that have been published by Marianne Wolf as one author, and another author I recommend, his name is Stanislas Dehaene. Both of them have put together books that are very accessible, that really unpack the science of reading and get us closer to thinking about why our students struggle and how we can address that. I also recommend a great website called understood.org. That's a really useful hub for all sorts of topics around learning and attention issues. Thank you for suggesting those titles. We're coming to the close of our interview. I want to thank you for your time. But before we end, can you share a favorite quote or saying? Sure. I'd love to share this quote with you. It's by Howard Gardner who's a professor at the Harvard Grad School of Education. And he said, discover your difference, the asynchrony with which you have been blessed or cursed, 
and make the most of it. I really appreciate that quote because it highlights for all of us that individual differences are inherent across the board. And each time that we recognize what those are is an opportunity for optimizing them and making the most of them. Oh, that's a great quote. Thank you for sharing that with me and our listeners. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Christodoulou, thank you for being a guest on the Pacific Education Pulse podcast. Our listeners and I appreciate you sharing your time, personal experiences, and expertise, all for the purpose of improving teaching and learning. We look forward to your visit to Hawaii in August when you'll be presenting at the Hawaii State Department of Education School Library Conference and the International Dyslexia Association Hawaii Branch Conference. Thank you so much. I really look forward to seeing you in person. Likewise. To our listeners out there, thank you for listening in. Remember, keep your finger on the pulse of education by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory. You can find this episode and other pep talk episodes on our website, pacificeducationpulse.com. Until next time, aloha. Aloha.